The sermon reading today comes from Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches that others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for all these people gathered here today in this, our dedication of our church, Lord. We pray that um, this church be a safe haven for the broken and a place of grace for the sinner. And I pray, Lord, that um, these words today from the scripture reading will enter our hearts, Lord, and that you will be with Alan as he brings us the message. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Now we're, we're continuing our look um, at Jesus' sermon uh, on the mount, and we're actually back in the very same passage we were in last week. If you were here last week, you're like, that looks pretty unfamiliar. It, it is the same passage. Because as we said last week, as we began um, unpacking this, we said that what Jesus does initially is he kind of underpins everything that he's about to say uh, under, uh, uh, under two basic principles, I guess you could say. Everything he's about to say, Jesus reminds us, is in complete and total agreement with the Old Testament. And then secondly, he said, everything that I'm about to tell you is in complete and utter disagreement with everything that your religious leaders have been teaching you. And so he sets up this dichotomy right away. And he shows us in this process that what he's teaching is actually nothing new. It's just what God has been saying all along through the law and the prophets, through the Old Testament. It's just the religious leaders were not very faithful at teaching it. And so we looked at those general principles that kind of undergird this whole passage last week. But this week I want us to go back in and dig in a little bit more to look at the particulars of what he's saying. Um, the details, if you will. How does Jesus fulfill the law? How does Jesus fulfill the prophets? And, and so let's start by looking at the prophets. And we'll have, obviously have a lot of quotations here from the Old Testament. Because think about the many ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophets. Um, I think that Joe referred to this earlier, but you know, Peter in, in writing is recalling that time when he and James and John got to see the transfigured Jesus uh, up on that mountain. And it was an incredible uh, experience. Uh, and, and it's often boasted about in the New Testament. In fact, it's probably, um, well, we don't need to get into that. It's a side thing. Let me stick with my point here. Um, as incredible as that was, what, what Peter tells us in his writings is, as great as that experience was, you guys actually have something even greater at your disposal than what we had with that experience. Because, he says, you guys have got the Old Testament. And so he says, basically, go back and read the Old Testament and see how it points to Jesus. And so that's really what we want to do together this morning. And, and you can see it from the very first words 
in, in the book of Genesis where God himself in chapter 3 promises that one day a descendant of Adam, though uh, weak enough that Satan would be able to strike him down, yet that son would eventually crush the head of Satan and defeat him. And you see it from there all the way down to, uh, you see it in, in the book of Psalms, uh, where King David, for example, in Psalm 22 is giving us very detailed account of Jesus' death, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember Jesus quoted those words from the cross? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now listen, that is an incredible amount of detail uh, about the coming death of Jesus, hundreds of years in advance, uh, all of which um, came about exactly as David said that it would. Or if you could also think of the very um, well-known prophecies in Isaiah 53, where describing Jesus, he says this, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I mean, how could anybody in the Old Testament have missed the idea that the coming Messiah would be a suffering servant and that he would die as a sacrifice in place of his people? Uh, it was so clear, and yet it was often missed. Or think about the, the many prophecies surrounding Jesus' birth, which were so clear and so obvious to everyone that when the wise men show up in Jerusalem looking uh, for this baby who was born, the religious uh, scholars were gathered together and they said with confidence, oh, we know that one. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. Or what about the many prophecies telling us how the Messiah would move beyond the nation of Israel, that he would gather all the nations of the earth to himself. Prophecies like uh, Micah 4.2, where he says, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Or in Zechariah chapter 8, where he says, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in those days, Ten people from all languages 
and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. All of these incredible prophecies about the gathering in of the nations, of, of the Gentiles into uh, God's family, and yet nobody seemed to be prepared for how uh, Jesus was going to fulfill these, and yet he did um, to the letter of the law. Or even think about John the Baptist who was suffering in prison, uh, about to have his head chopped off, and he was wondering, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Uh, because in the prophecies, when the Messiah comes, you're going to release the prisoners. And I'm a prisoner. Are you going to release me? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you really the one or should we look for another? And in answering, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 35 as well as 61, where he says, basically, everyone knows that when the Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And the tongue, a mute tongue, shout for joy. And he said, go back and tell them, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> right? That's, I'm healing all of these people. I'm fulfilling this prophecy. Listen, everything that Jesus ever said and did was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I mean, so much so that on the day of Pentecost, when the, when the Spirit descends upon the disciples and they're proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the language of all the people... And, and the people listening, they were surprised and, and shocked and some assumed that maybe they were drunk. What did Peter say? These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Listen, you, you cannot understand the Old Testament unless you see that it was all about Jesus. And you really can't get a full picture of who Jesus is unless you see all the descriptions of him found in the Old Testament. Because the, the Old Testament is entirely about Jesus. Okay, well then how does he fulfill the law? Um, Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that um, Jesus was born under the law which basically means since he was born as a human, he was subject to all the laws that God gave to humanity. He really was a human, and, and as such, he had to obey everything that God commanded of humanity. And you see, what this means is that the very giver of the law willingly subjected himself to the law in order to obey it for us. And so obviously the law is a good thing if Jesus devoted himself to keeping it, uh, in fact, he kept it so well that at the end of his life, when his accusers gathered to bring testimony against him, Scripture says they could find no fault in him regarding the law. They had to focus on traditions and rumors and such. And, and just think about even why did Jesus have to go to the cross in the first place? See, for a lot of people, when they think about Christianity and the cross, they, they have visions of Jesus as a, as a martyr, this unfortunate victim of injustice that he willingly endured. It was a gesture to uh, display his love for us. And therefore, we should be loving and we should be serving other people like Jesus did. But listen, the cross was more than a gesture of sentimental human sacrifice to display his love. It was more than an unjust sentence of death that he willingly endured. See, the cross is meant to do more than motivate us with a, a moving story. The cross is the essence of the law being fulfilled. Because what did the law demand? 
keep it perfectly or what? You die, right? The wages of sin is death. You commit even one sin and here's the death sentence. You, you must die. And so Jesus came and he bore that penalty, bearing the punishment that our disobedience demanded. And more than that, Jesus didn't just happen to die on a cross, but he actually had to die. He planned to die. He came for the purpose of dying. It wasn't, oops, I got caught in this crisis. He, you know, he says there's no other way to rescue us. Listen to what Matthew calls, uh, recalls in Matthew chapter 16. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. See, Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to die. He says, I must, because that's the only way that he could pay for our sins. Death was not just an unfortunate miscarriage of justice. He wasn't merely a, a, a martyr, but he willingly, gladly took on both the life that we all owe to God, a life of absolute perfection and full obedience to the law, but he also took on the death that we owe to God for our rebellion against him. And listen, what all of this means for you and me here today is that this is what allows us to stand before God and not only be seen by him as forgiven, more than that, we're seen as holy and righteous because of Jesus' obedience uh, for us. But also it gives us confidence and boldness to stand before him without any shame, without any burden of guilt, because our debt has been paid in full. It's all gone. And so nothing can now stand against us. I mean, this is why the Apostle Paul could these incredible words that we love to hear and very familiar to our ears. What then should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing statement. Everything that has ever been required of you, Jesus did it for you. It's been absolutely satisfied by his life and by his death. And listen, when Paul here says that nothing can now separate you from God, he means nothing, nothing. Your, your inconsistent daily quiet time can't separate you from him. Your, your words spoken to your spouse in anger or to your friend in anger cannot separate you from him. That foolish thing that you said or did cannot separate you from him. Your worst deeds on your worst days cannot separate you from him. And see, it's, it's hard for us to believe that because when we do stupid and foolish things, we feel separated from God. We sense that there's a distance between us. But listen, what sin does is it, it separates our ability to be able to experience and enjoy the acceptance that we have before God. 
We don't, we don't sense his smile because we're the ones who've walked away, not him. And, and it never jeopardizes his acceptance of us. He, he's always there. He's always loving us. He's never rejecting us because Jesus has paid our debt in full. And, and see, what this means practically is that when you beat yourself up over something foolish that you did, or maybe when you can't seem to forgive yourself when you've done something really foolish, when you feel locked into the grips of some failure in your life, you're not believing the gospel. God has not walked away from you. You've walked away from him. And all you have to do is turn around and repent, and he's right there waiting for you with open arms. Right? You remember the father and the prodigal son story? That's how Jesus describes how God the Father is waiting for us always. He's not rejecting us. He's not tired of us. He's not saying, oh, I'll let you stew for a while. He's always there. It's we who walk away from him. And see, how do you know all of this is true? How can you be sure that God is fully satisfied with all of your sins being paid in full? And, and really, you have to look no further than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because see, if death is the penalty for sin, and Jesus was paying that penalty by dying for us, his resurrection is proof that the perfect sacrifice has been satisfied. It satisfied God's anger against sin. Death can no longer hold him. We sang that this morning. And it can't hold him because he paid in full everything that separates you from God. And God is now pleased with his son. He's now pleased with you. In fact, when God looks at Jesus and his perfection and he looks at your heart, he can't tell the difference. Legally, that is how God views you. Listen, all of your sins and all of your shortcomings have been forgiven. And you have a sure and certain hope that everything that's still holding you back today, it's, it's all going to be conquered. It's all going to be resurrected. See, with the law fully satisfied, we are now fully adopted children of the king. And listen, we talked about this in the, in the uh, uh, confession this morning. Grace is not merely God saying, well, I'll forgive you this time, but you better not do it again. That is not grace and that is not forgiveness. No, it is God saying that I have obeyed every law that you should ever obey. And I have paid for every uh, sinful rebellion against me that you've ever done. So that legally now there is nothing that can stand against you any longer. Legally you are free from condemnation. And legally you are as holy and as righteous and as, an ex as acceptable as, as an adopted son as my own son Jesus is to me. But there's even more than that. Because not only has Jesus kept the law for us so that it's now legally true of us, but he's also in the process of working it in us in reality, in our real life experience. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter eight. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order, now listen to this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Do you hear what he's saying? Having fulfilled the law for us so that it's now legally true of us, Jesus through his spirit is now at work to bring the law to fruition within us. 
And what he's already made true of us legally, he's now working to become our experience day by day, more and more. It's the reality of what the prophet Jeremiah said when he says, this is hundreds of years before Jesus, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. See, what he's saying is with the coming of Jesus, the law of God is now written on our hearts. In the Old Testament, the law was out there. It was written on tablets. And because it was out there, it was a finger pointing at you. Stay in line. Don't mess up. It was, it was a constant judgment. But now that it's been met for us in Christ, the law of God is written within our hearts so that we now want to obey him. We long to obey him. See, we don't have to rely on something outside of us pointing at us and demanding things of us. But we now have the very laws of God. We have his very character written upon our hearts that gives us a new desire to want to obey him. And listen, we said this last week as we dealt with this passage, because everything that the law demands of us is legally true of us, and it can never be more true of us, and it can never be less true of us, it's legally yours, we are now freed from the fears of judgment and from messing up so that we can just pursue obeying the law because we want to. We don't have to worry about whether I'm really good at it or really bad at it. But I can pursue it out of love and out of desire, out of a longing to be like Jesus. Listen, unless you can see the veil of the temple torn in two by what Jesus did, no longer separating you from God, unless you can see that all of those, all of those Old Testament pictures, that Jesus is the altar of the sacrifice, he's the laver of washing, He's the sweet incense of aroma that's pleasing to God. He's the showbread that we feed upon. Unless you can see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises, you are still bound to obey the law on your own in every respect in order to earn God's favor. Right? Everybody has to obey the law of God. You either do it on your own, you better be good, or you rely upon Jesus to do it for you. But you see, if you can see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything then you can stand before God and, and see, listen, I am fulfilling the law of God by believing in the one who kept it for me legally. But I'm also fulfilling the law by subjecting myself to it willingly so that it becomes more and more true of me so that I can become more like him. So how do you do that? How can I use the law in order to remove the effects of sin in my life and become more and more like Jesus? And, and I'm, I'm always astounded by how Jesus summarizes uh, obedience to the law. All the laws, all the commands, all the rituals, all the ceremonies embodied in the entire Old Testament and he boils it all down to this. When he was asked what the greatest commandment was, he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now listen, what Jesus is saying here is that there's always a deeper sin 
beneath the sins that you commit. And here's where I want to get really practical to help you work through dealing with your own personal sins. Because the essence of what he said here is every sin that you've ever committed and ever will commit, it, it always comes back to these two things. And frankly, it comes back to the first one because the first one is what causes the second one. In other words, what is the sin beneath murder? Jesus goes on and says, well, it's anger. Okay, well, why? Because we don't believe in the goodness and the justice of God. And so we have to take over and administer it ourselves. What's the sin beneath adultery? Jesus says there's a lust there, but what is lust? Where does that come from? He says it comes from not believing that God is enough, that I need something more, that we have to go out and get it on our own terms. See, what's the sin beneath all of your worries and your fears? It's that God might not take care of my needs, at least, at least not as quickly or as deeply as I can provide for myself. Why do you want run to relationships and money and and, and a successful career and, 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 and sex and acceptance to find security. Because deep down, you really don't believe that God will come through and provide for you the security that you need. And you see, listen, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a model for how to repent. I think most of the time we spend all of our efforts confessing and repenting of the things that we did and said. But Jesus says, you haven't really gotten to the sin yet. You're spending all of your time repenting of the fruit of your sin. Because I said this and I did this and I reacted that way. Yeah, that's wrong. Repent of that. But that's just the fruit of it. You haven't dug deep enough to get to the sin yet. And so you've got to go deeper and you've got to ask, well, why did I do that? Why did I say that? What's underneath that? And typically when you do that, you'll find there's all sorts of circumstantial reasons. Well, I was defending myself. Uh, my circumstances were just overwhelming. I didn't have any choice. I, I had to. Uh, or I was tired. I was in a bad mood. It had been a rough week. There's all sorts of excuses. Well, that's why. And Jesus says, okay, all right, that's why. Keep going. Why did that circumstance rob you of your security? Why was what that person said to you something that made you feel like you had to take justice into your own hands. Why? And he says, keep digging and digging and digging deeper and deeper and keep asking why until you get back to the core. And Jesus says, when you get back to the core, it will always be what? It's the same sin that Adam and Eve had in the garden because it's the core of what sin actually is, that you just don't trust that God has your best interests at heart. You don't trust that God is going to be good. You fear that maybe he's holding out on you and you could do better getting for yourself. See, it's the core of why you don't love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind, which makes you insecure enough that you can't love your neighbor as yourself. That's always the sin beneath every sin, right? And listen, I know some of you are frustrated. There are just some sins in your life that just don't go away. And I'm not making any progress in that area. And my guess is you're probably repenting of the fruit of your sins, which I can tell you from personal experience is often akin to being frustrated that I couldn't have been better, frustrated that I couldn't have been stronger, frustrated that I couldn't have been more faithful. And it's not re really repenting of the fact that I don't love God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength. Listen, all sin is a failure to believe the gospel. All sin is. Make sure that your repentance is more than merely trimming back the branches of the fruit of sin in your life and begin to get at the root of what's actually causing it. Otherwise, it'll just keep coming back. Like any good pruned tree, you know how it works. It comes back twice as thick as it did before you trimmed it in the first place. 
And listen, here's, here's God's promise. The law which has been kept for you is now being worked in you so that one day it will be fully true of you in reality. I mean, this is our future. This is where God is taking everything so that one day his righteousness will fill the earth and all lawbreakers will be punished. So you can relax about needing to get even. All injustice will be paid for. So you can actually work for justice today. You're on the winning side. It's going to win eventually, right? All wrongs will be righted. So you can let go of grudges against other people. Because listen, in the end, everybody will either end up living under the smile of God's love and sacrifice for us, or they will live eternally under the judgment of the law, right? I mean, listen, hell is not just a bad mood for God. I've had enough of these people. I'm going to send them to hell. That's not the way it works. Hell is the ongoing punishment for failing to live for God's glory. According to our original design, God said, this is how I made you. This is what I made you for, to be, to do. And when you don't, there's punishment. Now, let's end by asking this. What does all this mean for our relationship to the law today? How do forgiven people relate to the law right now? And, and I want you to listen to this passage from Galatians 3 because Paul deals with this extensively. He turns to a group of believers who are very much like Appalachian Christians. I believe in the cross. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. But now it's all up to me. I've got to get my act together and live right. And listen to what he says. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Listen, we talked about this last week, but we do not have to obey any law of God in order to make ourselves more acceptable before him, in order to have a better week, in order to have my prayers answered, in order to get into heaven. Those who do not rest in Jesus for their salvation, they do. They are absolutely required to live in, in total perfection. That's their only hope, all right? Because they don't have somebody to cover it for them. But see, for the Christian, we do. We obey the law of God out of love. 
We, we, we obey it out of a longing to be like Jesus. Because Jesus legally kept it for us, this is what it means to be a Christian. Right? We look forward to what God is making us into one day for all eternity. And see, with the law of God now written upon our hearts, we want to obey it. And of course we still have to obey it because it's right. It's, it's who God is. And we're never free from living for his glory. And yet we're forgiven when we fall short in order that we might enjoy the process of learning to obey more fully and more deeply. And not just on the surface with the letter of the law. Right? Just don't get caught looking bad. Which is basically how our culture teaches. And you see, the more that you obey the law of God from the heart, even when nobody's looking, the more you can actually enjoy God. And you can enjoy what he's designed you to be. I mean, there's nothing more joyful and more satisfying than being and doing exactly what you were made to do. But when you fall short, there's grace and there's forgiveness for us. And when you fall short, it has no effect on God's favor with you. All it does is diminish your ability to be able to see him and to enjoy the things that you were made for. Listen, we do not move from law to grace when we become Christians. Rather, we move from needing to obey the law in order to please God and earn his favor. We move into then now having Jesus fulfill it for us so that we can just work on obeying it without any fear of judgment and shame. Listen, every aspect of the law is a schoolmaster leading us to Jesus because it's all about Jesus. And so, of course, we're not free from needing to obey it. We're only free from the curse of not obeying it. We're free from the judgment of not obeying it. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that we can swing to the other extreme either, embrace uh, what is affectionately known as the antinomian creed. Antinomian just means anti-law, which uh, summarizes this way, freed from the law of blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. All right, that's kind of the antinomian creed. And, and it doesn't go that direction either. That's not what he's saying because Paul reminds us in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Because listen, our many failings at keeping the law can never affect our standing with God. Rather, as I said, it means that we're free to work on obeying it without fear of judgment, without being afraid that God is mad at me, without being afraid that God is disappointed with me, without being afraid that God isn't going to bless me and take care of me today. But of course you will work on obeying the law. Of course you will. Because a new heart that you have wants to. And when you find that your new heart doesn't want to, lead your heart to repentance for believing some lie that makes you not want to. Right? Ask yourself, why do I not want to? What lie have I believed that there's life over here instead of in Jesus? And repent of that. Because in the end, I think we can say this with confidence based on what Jesus is saying here. And I want you to hear this warning. If, if the grace of God does not build a longing for obedience and righteousness and holiness within you, then you've not yet received genuine grace, period. If knowing that your sins are now forgiven does not drive you to want to become more like Jesus, then you should have no confidence that your sins actually have been forgiven. The two go hand in hand. There's no way around it because God's grace always leads us to obedience. As we end, listen to how Paul reminds Titus of that very truth. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, religious people feel guilty for not living right, so they work hard to get it better next time. But redeemed people are eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work within us more and more each day, hearts that are eager to do what is good, that long to become like Jesus, that are able to let go of the shame and the guilt um, of beating ourselves up over our failures and to realize that that's why you came. You came to live the life that we just can't live. And you paid for all of our foolishness on the cross. And because of that, we have right standing with you. We are legally pure and holy and righteous. And so with that new heart, we, we just, we want to be like that. We want to experience it because we know that you are life. And nothing in this world uh, is life in itself. Everything you've created points to life. It reminds us of life. They're pictures of life. But you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that you would help for us to believe that more and more as we pursue um, radical holiness in our lives to become more and more like Jesus. We pray this in his name.